Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa rise and shine This is Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to southern africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to far west africa as well as on dstv's audio bouquet channel 902 i'm lulu gabu in studio with Anne musa tabisola hugo and figile lingwati in our top stories on africa rise and shine at this hour a central african republic interim president ready to hand over power African Union to deploy human rights observers to Burundi and Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe rejects food aid from gay-friendly countries. In economics, Nigeria's President Muhammadu expresses concern over oil prices and in sports news, Nigeria's Football Federation will not appoint indigenous coaches again. But first up, the news with Dan Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Militant group Al-Shabaab has claimed responsibility for twin blasts in the Somali town of Bedo that killed at least 17 people and injured 25 others. Police say a suicide car bomb exploded at a junction while a second blast, possibly a bomb that had been planted or a suicide bomber, struck a restaurant. The blast came just two days after two massive explosions, also claimed by Al-Shabaab, killed 25 people in the capital Mogadishu and wounded nearly 60 others. Unidentified aircraft is reported to have carried out airstrikes on a convoy carrying suspected IS militants near Libya's Baniwalid area. Local forces and the U.S. have both used airstrikes against militants in Libya. This month, U.S. warplanes launched an airstrike on a suspected IS training camp in the western Libyan city of Sabratha, killing more than 40 people. The militants have taken advantage of political chaos and a security vacuum to expand their presence in Libya. The African Union has welcomed Burundi's President Pierre Nkurunziza's support for the deployment of 100 human rights observers and 100 military monitors to his country. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma led a delegation to Burundi to facilitate peace talks, which are part of the AU's plan to end violence in the country. Thousands of people have been killed in Burundi following Nkurunziza's announcement to stand for a third term last year. President Zuma has described the talks as fruitful. We are pleased that all parties expressed strong commitment to resolving whatever political problems exist through inclusive and peaceful dialogue. Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe has described as filthy aid that Western countries give on condition that Africa accepts gay rights. The veteran leader was addressing thousands of supporters at his 92nd birthday party, southeast of the capital Harare. Critics, including the main opposition MDC, have slammed the celebrations, saying they came in the midst of a devastating drought that has left 3 million people facing hunger. Mugabe has told Western donors to keep their aid. If aid 
is to be given on the basis that we accept the principle of uh, gay marriages, then let that, that aid stay where it is. We don't want it. It's rotten aid. Filthy aid. And finally, South Africa's Higher Education and Training Minister Bladen Zimande has warned of a possible racial confrontation at universities if the issue of using Afrikaans as a language of instruction is not addressed. He was addressing the media after a meeting with management and students from the University of Pretoria in Johannesburg. In some of these institutions, you could easily have racial confrontation. We must be careful that... In the manner in which we treat the problems that are facing us, we don't allow deterioration where we see expressions of racism as well as anti-white chauvinism. We must condemn both those things. And that's the news. It lands at 8.30 Central African Time. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I love It's 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Central Africa Republic's interim president Catherine Samba Panza says she is now ready to hand over power to the newly elected president of her country to mark the end of the transition but is calling on Central Africa's wherever they are to accept the election results. Samba Panza, who was speaking in Cameroon, also called on voters to massively participate at the March 27th legislative elections rerun. Channel Africa's Mogi Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. CAR's interim president, Catherine Samba Panza, says although she did not plan to officially visit Cameroon, home to over 300,000 Central African refugees who have been following up with keen interest the presidential elections in her country, she was happy to use the opportunity offered by a technical stopover while on her way to Washington, D.C. to pass a message to her countrymen and women. She says the message was important because results of the last elections in her country will determine they are going back. Je suis sur la route pour aller à Washington pour aller justement faire le bilan. 
She says she is on her way to Washington, D.C. to give an account of the period of transition and continue to plead for her country to be assisted out of the disorder that they have witnessed. She says she is happy she organized elections under difficult conditions but rejoices that a majority of her citizens had accepted the results. She says she will continue to assist the elected officials to work for the interest of all Central Africans. de la transition de continuer à appuyer les autorités élues Faustin Arch Ange Twadera was declared winner and Anisette Dulugali loser of the elections. But that is not yet the end of the electoral process in CAR. The interim president says they still need more financial resources to be able to organize legislative elections in our country by March 27, 2016. Oh, oui. Je venais de dire au Premier ministre que j'ai eu le baume au cœur quand j'ai eu un geste. She says she was happy Cameron, like many other neighboring countries, supported our country with some finances to be able to organize the elections, and it is our wish that all registered Central Africans come out to vote in their legislative elections on March 27. Les élections législatives qui auront lieu le 27 mars. CAR has a history of unrest since it gained independence from France in 1960. The crisis that the last presidential election is expected to solve began after Muslim Seleka rebels overthrew President François Bozizi in March 2013. Abuses by the rebels triggered the rise of the anti-Balaka Christian defense groups and a cycle of killings and violence. Samba Panza says unlike former leaders, she will hand over power, but if called upon to serve her nation, she will give in her best. Je suis encore préoccupé par la finition de la transition. J'aurai des occupations, je continuerai à être utile pour mon pays, si je peux. She says although she is ready to hand over to the elected president of her country, she is still available to share her know-how, not only for the peace of her country, but for the development of Africa. She says she will give her best wherever she is called upon to work. Pour l'Afrique et pourquoi pas pour le monde. Donc je vais mettre à la disposition de mon pays l'expérience que j'ai eu à vivre pendant la transition. CAR suffered more than two years of sectarian fighting that left thousands dead and forced nearly 500,000 people to flee to neighboring countries with about 300,000 in Cameroon. After CAR's national elections body announced the former prime minister, Faustin Arch Ange Twadera, had won the country's presidential election with 63% of the ballots cast, main rival Anisette Dualegeli, another former prime minister, accepted the results, sparking hope that people might at last return to the troubled country. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. 
South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar has announced that he will enter Juba before the end of the week. The announcement follows Machar's telephone conversation with United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, who has just returned to New York after concluding a one-day visit to South Sudan. James Shimangula has more. South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar has announced that he will officially enter the country's capital Juba before the end of this week to join President Salva Kiir in the formation of a transitional government of national unity. The government was expected to be formed in the first week of last month, but security arrangements have delayed its formation after Riek Machar, insisting that he can only enter the capital Juba once his security team is allowed to take strategic positions. But the one-day visit to Juba last week by the United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has apparently played a pivotal role in persuading Riek Machar to enter Juba to become part of the new government that is to be formed as per the agreement that both President Salva Kiir and Riek Machar signed in August last year. Riek Machar says although he's going to Juba, the government of President Salva Kiir remains broke due to the stoppage of oil production following more than two years of fighting between his forces and the government troops. I'm ready to go to Juba. I'm just waiting for the first phase of the security arrangement being put in place. The country has no money, more or less it is broke. The running of the government and the reform process need support from the international community. Taking into consideration that the Juba government is broke, as Riek Machar says, is there any hope of reviving the country that has virtually collapsed Machar again? Bank Mooney has assured me that once the transitional government is formed, he would assist in mobilizing resources for the new government. Once I get to Juba, once we form the government, then we should start discussing the number of states. I hope we will reach to an agreement because I'm also interested in increment of the state. In a scientific manner, we should discuss and agree. But if we fail, major activity would be assuring people of South Sudan that peace has come, which would mean political stability and security is maintained. And then now we can address issues such as the IDPs, which are in the UNIMIS protection Riek Machar says as he prepares to enter Juba, fighting, pitting ethnic groups against each other is taking place in several parts of the country. Hence, the need to swing into action and ensure that security is maintained and the fighting is brought to an end. Fighting taking place now. There is need for us to deploy joint troops in Bor, Malakal, Juba, even Mundri, Yambio, Wow. We need to make the situation peaceful, security restored, and then start implementing the other aspects of the agreement. South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar, once he arrives in Juba and takes his post of deputy president, a government of national unity comprising 30 cabinet ministers will be formed, with Salva Kiir remaining president. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula.
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now the African Union will deploy human rights observers to violence plague Burundi following a visit to the country by five African leaders. Burundian President Pien Kurunzinza supports the deployment of 100 military monitors and 100 human rights observers, the AU said in a statement. Kurunzinza had previously opposed the AU's decision to deploy peacekeepers, saying they would be treated as an invading force. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura. Speaking to the press before flying back home on Saturday, the South African President Jacob Zuma, who headed the African Union high-level delegation of heads of states and governments to Burundi last week, expressed his appreciation of strong commitment of Burundian stakeholders to resolving the crisis through an inclusive and peaceful dialogue. He, however, said the delegation remains worried about the ongoing violence and instability still costing lives of Burundians for 10 months now. The high-level delegation of the heads of state and government expressed its concerns about the levels of violence, loss of life, and the general state of political instability in the country. We are, however, pleased that all parties expressed strong commitment to resolving whatever political problems exist through inclusive and peaceful dialogue. We believe strongly that the solution to Burundi political problems can be attained only through inclusive and peaceful engagement. As the government of Burundi flatly rejected the proposal of deploying the 5,000 peacekeeping troops in the country, President Jacob Zuma disclosed the government has complied with the AU will of deploying 100 human rights observers and 100 military monitors with the aim of monitoring the current situation prevailing the country. He revealed that Ugandan President Teori Museveni will soon convene an inclusive dialogue as Burundi accepted to open up free political activities and allow freedom of the press. The government of Burundi has committed to the following. The government will continue the steps it has begun to open up space for free political activity by the people of Burundi and ensure the freedom of the media. The AU will deploy 100 human rights observers and 100 military monitors to Burundi to monitor the situation. His Excellency President Yoweri Museveni 
President of the Republic of Uganda will convene an inclusive dialogue that will be attended by all important stakeholders as soon as possible to continue the work that he has already started of facilitating peace talks. In Burundi. The African Union high-level delegation of heads of states and government also took the opportunity to appeal to the international community to restore support to Burundi in conflict in a bid to enable Burundians to find lasting peace and development for their country. We urge the international community to support the people of Burundi in their efforts to find lasting peace and development for the country. In this regard, we urge the international community to restore the provision of assistance to Burundi as requested by the people of Burundi so that they can continue with building their country. President Jacob Zuma headed fellow leaders, President Mohamed Oudablelaziz of Mauritania, Makisal of Senegal, Ali Bongo Ondimba of Gabon, and Haile Marian Desalain of Ethiopia in their 25th to 26th February visit to try to convince Burundians to resolve the current crisis. During their tour, the African delegation met with various government leaders, members of the opposition, civil society, and former president Domis Chendaizeye, so as to acquaint themselves with the Burundi conflicts. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Mankukira reporting from Bujumbura. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has rejected food assistance from nations that advocate for gay rights. Mugabe said over the weekend during his 92nd lavish birthday held in Masvingo, 300 kilometers south of the capital Harare, Zimbabwe requires 1.8 billion US dollars worth of food aid to feed more than 3 million citizens who are currently starving. Simon Muchema has more from Harare. 92-year-old Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has come under fire following his remarks Saturday rejecting food aid from countries that respect gay rights. Although Mugabe, now the oldest leader in the world, is known for his anti-gay remarks, he shocked the world by rejecting food aid at a time more than 3 million of his citizens are starving. Not only has Mugabe been criticized for his gay remarks, but his lavish spending of 1 million US dollars for his Saturday's birthday has been described as insensitive. Officials in Zimbabwe say 1.8 million US dollars is required to feed the starving nation and has since asked for donors to assist. The current food shortages are as a result of poor rains last season, although more people shall require food aid next year, as Zimbabwe is one of the countries in the region badly affected by drought due to El Nino. While addressing thousands of his supporters in the drought-prone Mashingo, 300 kilometers south of the capital, Mugabe rejected efforts to entice Zimbabwe into respecting gay rights through food aid. Never, ever accept that our society can condone marriages of man to man. The so-called gays, no, they have no place in our society. And they should not worry us about our own ideas on this matter. If aid, as I understand, is to be given on the basis that we accept the principle of uh, gay marriages, then let that, that aid stay where it is. 
We don't want it. It's rotten aid, filthy aid, and we won't have anything to do with it. Outspoken wildlife conservationist and chairman of the Zimbabwe Conservation Task Force, Johnny Rodriguez, had this to say. You know, the, the, the whole thing is, um, you know, the president is focused on other things. Um, the issue here is it doesn't matter if it's, it's homosexuals, lesbians or whatever. These people are actually helping their, their own families. I mean, they're earning money overseas. It's currency that the country needs. How can you go there now and say, well, homosexuals and queers? You know, it's, it just doesn't make sense. Well, the thing is, you know, it's, it's all politi- uh, politicking, okay? It's all about politics. And I mean, to actually, like in Zimbabwe, the human rights, I mean, is virtue zero. So he can do what he likes. You know, and uh, to actually say, uh, to differentiate people and sort of saying, you know, we can't accept or organizations to send money from overseas that will help the, the poor people in this country. It's crazy. Really, it's a sign of madness. Ironically, during his address, Mugabe made an about 10 and pleaded for food aid for his starving citizen. I would want to, to end by saying, well, it has been a bad year for us from the point of view of the climate and our season, agricultural season has not gone that well. So we are having to uh, ask, ask for help as we seek for maize and other forms of grain. So we will do our best. I think it's a question of, uh, of transport. Meanwhile, a Zimbabwean youth in the opposition, Progressive Democratic Party, Malvin Mashoko, accused Mugabe of being hypocritical regarding gay rights. That's hypocrisy from Mugabe, whose cabinet or government or party has allegations of having too many gays or homosexuals, if you want to call them. So for him to, to deny... Uh, the, res- the citizens of Zimbabwe who are starving of food aid because it's coming from gay nations. It's, for me, it's a human rights issue where we, we, we have a president who must be charged with high reason for wanting to starve the, at least 2 million people because he's against gays. Actually, we, we are told that his um, birthday was partly funded by the same people that he's denying them to de- donate food aid to Zimbabwe. On one hand, President Mugabe has donated 300 head of cattle to the African Union, a pledge made last year in his capacity as chairman of the African Union, AU. Rodriguez said the country's head is depleting due to drought, hence the donation is ill-timed. It's crazy. I mean, you know, any country should look after its own citizens first, after its poor people, before you start donating. I mean, if the country was, you know, had an abundance of, of cattle and what, what more it's a different thing we haven't i mean the domestic uh, cattle industry has gone down so you know the people are starving and we donating cattle to you know to the au it's to whatever foundation it's crazy reporting for channel africa in harare zimbabwe this is simon muchemwa 
Libya is in the grip of widespread human rights violations that may amount to war crimes amid a dramatically worsening situation for people there. Announcing the findings of a new report into abuses in the war-torn country, the United Nations Human Rights Office highlighted that all warring parties bear responsibility. Among its recommendations, the report calls for the International Criminal Court to be given more resources to investigate and prosecute those responsible for atrocities in the North African state. Good Sanga, desk officer for Libya at the Human Rights Office, elaborates on what the investigators found in their report. I think this report really illustrates the magnitude and the widespread nature of the violations and abuses taking place in Libya. The report covers the period from 2014 and it really reflects upon an increase in violence since then and a worsening human rights situation since then as well. And it really documents the accounts of some of those who are bearing the brunt of this, including migrants, women, internally displaced persons, children. Give us a bit more detail on the kind of abuses that are being delivered on children, for example. I think you talk about sexual abuse on children as young as 11. You're right. The report reflects upon the violations which have been perpetrated against children, including sexual abuse. And it also refers to and addresses the recruitment of children and the use of children in hostilities by groups pledging allegiance to ISIL. And talking of ISIL, it's not just the extremist groups who are accountable and responsible for these abuses, it's all sides to the conflict in Libya, I think you say. And it does sound like a completely lawless state. And on that point, you do detail in the report the fact that the justice system has, if not broken down, Everywhere, certainly in many places, it's totally dysfunctional. It's been attacked and there's no chance of pursuing armed uh, group leaders because the courthouses themselves and the judges are being targeted. The report details violations and abuses by all parties, both state and non-state actors. And indeed, it goes into quite some detail as to the situation of the justice system, which indeed is in a state of collapse in many parts of the country as a result of prosecutors and judges being killed, abducted, threatened. As an illustration, to our knowledge, there's not been a single prosecution of an armed group leader or very limited investigations. So that really illustrates the situation and the fact that the justice system does not have the capacity to investigate or prosecute the sheer magnitude of violations and abuses taking place. Could you perhaps give us a detail on the kind of scale of this investigation, how many people you spoke to and what you hope will happen because you have identified war crimes but crimes against humanity will take a much bigger burden of proof? The team itself consisted of about six human rights officers and they were supported by security administration and translation staff. Indeed, the team spoke to about 200 victims and witnesses and another 50 uh, interlocutors In terms of what the report and what the office is recommending, it's recommending a number of recommendations which fundamentally refer to ensuring accountability and the re-establishment of the justice sector within Libya, including for the international community to support the International Criminal Court to investigate alleged crimes under international law. So it's basically a case of watch this space while the abuses continue in Libya. Well, that's why the report is urging action as soon as possible, both in relation to supporting the ICC and in relation to ensuring that the re-establishment of the justice sector is a priority for any future assistance or in terms of any future action by a new government.
That was Gudib Sanga, desk officer for Libya at the United Nations Human Rights Office, speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. It's 8.31 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, Al-Shabaab has claimed responsibility for twin blasts in the Somali town of Beidou that killed 17 people and injured 25 others. The African Union has welcomed Burundi's President Pierre Nkurunziza's support for the deployment of 100 human rights observers and 100 military monitors to his country. And Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe describes as filthy aid that Western countries give on condition that Africa accepts gay rights. Those are the stories making headlines. The world remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg on this Monday, the February the 29th. It is a leap year this year with 60 days, with 360 days left in 2016. Today in... Uh, Rather, with 306 days left in the year, because, as I said, it is a leap year. Friday normally ends on the 28th, but this year it's the 29th of Feb. Today in 2004, racing rebellion Haitian President Jean-Bertrand Aristide resigned and left for exile in the Central African Republic. That was today in history in the year 2004. Preparing cities to better respond to humanitarian crisis and vital, is vital in this day and age when more and more migrants and refugees are seeking sanctuary in urban areas. That's the view of Aisa Kasira, Deputy Executive Director of United Nations Habitat, a UN agency which supports sustainable urban development. Kaisira says the issue surrounding displacement in urban areas will be one among many discussed at the World Humanitarian Summit in May. It's important that we see today that as leaders, urbanization is a tool that we can use to organize ourselves better, to empower the people affected, to empower the existing systems and so it's important that we work very closely with existing leadership at local government level, mayors, civil society, private sector, everybody in an integrated approach beyond the individuals so that we can further support them to go beyond the emergence of survival to a life of service and dignity to which they can only achieve through going beyond the boundaries of what we define as as camps. The upcoming World Humanitarian Summit is advocating for that. And beyond that, for us as UN Habitat and the uh, world uh, leadership, we are also very happy that the Habitat Conference is going to help people look at how the new urban agenda is going to facilitate responding specifically to urban crisis in a much more effective, efficient and sustainable way. What specific benefits are there 
to giving cities the tools to respond to these crises as well as providing on-the-ground support on the individual level. We're trying to encourage leaders, mayors and national governments to plan proactively, to plan ahead for city or urban expansion. When they do so, that means that actually, one, they can prevent uh, disaster, but more importantly, even if they can't prevent it, they can actually proactively be able to respond to it much, much better. So the problem that we've been having now is that when, when there's a, a, a crisis, we immediately think of looking for some place to handle it. But we know that people will move to places of opportunity. And the fact that towns and cities are where they are, there is a node of attraction. And that node of attraction should be supported and nurtured, not to lose that, that potential. And so this the new urban agenda that advocates for uh, proactive urban planning and design, the right governance and legal processes, and a financial or business model towards that really encompasses the, the power that the leadership needs. The other point that I wanted to... Uh, mention is the, the, the tapping into the existing endogenous capacity. I think the temptation we have in the middle of a crisis is immediately seeing everybody as a victim. The quick answer is let's get aid and let's keep on giving them aid. It's certainly important, absolutely necessary that people must be protected and supported with aid as an immediate action. But it's also equally as important to think beyond what uh, the, the urgency or the emergency situation looks like to the extent that these people actually have potential in them. So what we've been doing in UN Habitat is what we call urban profiling. We uh, engage with the leadership in the cities to identify the existing capacity and be amazed by the, the level of skills that the, the refugees and the migrants are bringing into the cities. And sometimes they work even as volunteers. And they come to serve the city in planning, in the legislative processes, in the construction. And in a way, they are contributing to the city, but also it gives them a sense of worth. I'm interested if you have an example of one of these success stories where the urban profiling really worked to benefit displaced people in a specific city. For Kabul, we've been there for over 20 years. And there, what we did, there was hardly any existing even sound local governance systems. So we started off with community-based organizations. We engaged with them. We trained them. They organized themselves, women groups, youth groups, and they started uh, what we could only do from there was to help them at least define their communities, who is where, designate their property and their housing, start the resource mobilization up to the extent that the last time I did visit, which was about two years ago, 40% 40% of the resources that we're using were contributions from the communities themselves. And they were doing so proudly because they knew whenever we opened up a, a road, that was business. So they would immediately open up their local business. Whenever there was water and uh, drainage, then and, uh, a school, that's a safe place for children. So it was so inspiring that you see the, the level of destruction, but the inspiration and the motivation of the people to move on is so, so inspiring. That was Aisa Kasira, Deputy Executive Director of the United Nations Humanitarian United Nations Habitat, speaking to UN Radio's Carmen Cuesta Roca. Your South African ID is your most valuable asset. All fundamental rights flow directly from being a citizen. 
Yet countless South Africans are being rendered stateless simply because they cannot prove their identity. The UN estimates that there are over 10 million stateless people worldwide. These are people who cannot claim citizenship of any country and are thus unable to work or travel. In South Africa, they face constant police harassment. In a two-part series, Candace Nolan tackles the issue. Nationality is said to be the right to have rights. My name is Akumbwani Frederick Ngubane, and I am stateless. Stateless means I'm a person who doesn't belong to any country. Kumbulani Frederick Ngubane was born on the 10th of December 1990 in Newcastle, KZN. After his father died, his mom took him to live in Nairobi, Kenya, where she worked as a pharmacist. She died when he was only 12 years old, and he was raised by his mother's friend in Uganda, but she also later passed away. Kumbulani returned to South Africa to try and track down his family, but was met with a cold reception. Several times I've been arrested and assaulted just because of having no papers and you can see these guys from the police here because he was trying to explain they hit me the moment you tell them no look i i am stateless to them it sounds stupid and some of on my face officials say this you know there's nobody who is stateless there's nothing like that neither south africa nor kenya and not even uganda recognize him as a citizen Shortly after arriving in South Africa, the taxi Kumbulani was travelling in was hijacked and the passengers taken hostage. He managed to escape, but not before his captors took his belongings, including his original birth certificate and school diplomas. While he was out of the country, his ID number was flagged for fraud and wiped from the system. His only hope was to try and trace his father's family in KZN, but all he knew was his father's name, Johannes Ngubane. I went to the police station in Newcastle and KCN, but they couldn't believe me because when they could ask me, what are your names, I could tell them Kumbulani, Frederick Ngubani. They said, no, Kumbulani, Frederick Ngubani must be Zulu and you must be able to speak Zulu. If you were born of um, Zulu parents, you also would have been able to speak Zulu. This led to his first arrest on immigration charges, which saw him spending three months at the Lindela Repatriation Centre in Krugersdorp. At that time, Lindela police stations and prisons had not yet been specifically designated for the detention of migrants. The Home Affairs Department have since designated just over 400 police stations countrywide. But in terms of a recent constitutional court judgment read by Justice Edwin Cameron, the taxpayer will still have to foot the bill for damages claims filed before the designation. The Director General is indeed required to apply his or her mind to what places are appropriate for the detention of illegal foreigners. Absent a determination of this kind, the respondents were detained unlawfully. It follows that they were entitled to damages. Lawyers for Human Rights says this can only help if the Constitutional Court also gives immigrants automatic access to our courts. The Constitution says that everyone who is arrested has the right to appear in court within 48 hours. That case is still pending. LHR's Wayne Mube. If the court goes and says, yes, you're meant to do ABC, but then you are then thrown into a dark hole somewhere where no one ever sees you and you never get a chance to appear in front of court, it really doesn't matter what the law says. Mube says they have found plenty of violations. We once found a gentleman who had been in uh, immigration detention for almost two years 
and he was a stateless individual who could not be deported anywhere. Liesl Miller heads up the Statelessness Project at Lawyers for Human Rights. It would definitely help stateless people in the sense that they won't be detained for so long. So it would mean that a stateless person can be arrested, yes, and then 48 hours later the person has to be brought before a court. By that time, the immigration official will have to be able to show that he can deport this person. So if after 48 hours the person is still stateless, then he can never go to Lindela. In part two of the series, we look at how easy it is for any South African to be rendered stateless. We tell the story of Alpha Mtambo, who was deported to Zimbabwe, despite that country not recognizing him as a citizen. I'm Candice Nolan in Johannesburg. For more on this story, follow at Candice underscore Klein on Twitter. Nigerian artist Berna Boy has been crowned the best Pan-African artist at the 15th annual Metro FM Music Awards held at the Inkosi Albert Lutuli International Convention Center in Durban here in South Africa. The event is one of the biggest award shows on the South African social calendar. Channel Africa's Ntlantla Matlang was there and filed this report. The Metro FM Music Awards celebrated 15 years of existence, recognizing and showcasing local talent from different music genres. The awards were staged on Saturday evening at the Inkosi Albert Lutuli International Convention in front of a crowd of over 4,000 people. This year saw the introduction of the new African category, which acknowledges musicians beyond South Africa's borders and artists who are listened on the radio station's playlist. The nominees in the African category included Nigerian artist Wizkid, Benaboy, Patoranking, The Mavens, and Ricardo Banks. Benaboy was the overall winner. I mean, it's great, man. You know, it makes me even feel more at home than I already do. It's because it's the reality. Like, you know, like I connect to, I connect to the people that can't speak for themselves. You know, so I mean, my fan base is the type that's ready to die for me because, you know, like it's deep, it's deep, it's really deep. Female artist Fifi Cooper was one of the biggest winners. She received the Best Newcomer, Best Produced Album and Best Female Album for her 20 Fifi album. She says she's excited. I'm very happy and excited, obviously being the first female rapper to ever win a Metro FM Awards. It's overwhelming for me, but definitely it means that my hard work is paying off and my fans are really supporting me because they voted for me. And that report ended by Fifi Cooper, an award-winning artist of the Metro Awards, which took place on Saturday in Durban. Ended by Ntlantla Matlangu, our economics update. Up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari says that the OPEC cartel needs to take action to stabilize the oil market because the crude prices have fallen to totally unacceptable levels. Nigeria is Africa's biggest oil producer, which earns around 90% of its foreign exchange earnings from crude oil exports. Buhari says that the current market situation in the oil industry is unsustainable and totally unacceptable. 
Crude oil prices have dipped in early trading as reports of a meeting by oil producers to freeze output to failed to convince the traders that enough effort was being made to rein in the ballooning global oversupply. As the drop in prices came after oil markets rose, but the rally did not last, as traders estimated that a freeze in production would not reduce a glut that has pulled down prices by 70% since 2014. Zambia's Mopane copper mine is seeking to inject 1.1 billion US dollars into completing three shafts to extend the life of its operations. The mining company is forecasting to increase copper production by 50% over the next eight years. CEO Johan Janssen says even with the current weak copper price, the company would turn its operations around to becoming a top international copper producer. The New Development Bank hopes to approve its first batch of loans next quarter. Bank President K.V. Kamath was speaking at a signing ceremony for the launch of the Shanghai headquarters of the bank, an infrastructure-focused lender established by the BRICS Immersion Nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Kamath says the bank will make one loan to each BRICS country in April, likely for green projects. Financial indicators, the U.S. dollar trades at 16.14 in South Africa, 10.92 in Botswana, 11.42 in Zambia, 7.1 British pound, 9.0 euro, gold $1,224, platinum $916 an ounce, brand crude oil $35, 5.0 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, I'm Tabiso Lohoko. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Fila Lingwati. In our update now, South Africa's Premier League side, Mamelodi Sundowns, have advanced to the first round of the CAF Champions League after beating the Zimbabwean team Chicken Inn 2-0 in the preliminary round second league at the Lucas Muripe Stadium in Pretoria on Saturday night. The win gave the Brazilians a 2-1 aggregate success after they went down 1-0 in the first league in Bulawayo two weeks ago. Sundowns coach Peter Musimani says the opposition played differently compared to the first league. Totally different from the, 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 the game there and this one. It's totally different. The common thing about that game and this one is we dominated with the ball, with possession. Even in Zimbabwe, we dominated. What we did different is to look after the strikers who come out on counter-attack. So we did our homework on that and that was what we did right because that's how they scored earlier. But also we also knew that we had to score earlier to, to give confidence to the boys. But as I told you, um, now you can see that this team, how they, they, they defeated the teams of Highlanders and uh, Sundowns will meet AC Leopards from Congo Brazzaville in the first round with the first leg in Pretoria in two weeks' time. And still saddened by the resignation of his African Pipe Guardiola, Sunday Olise from the Super Eagles, president of the Nigeria Football Federation, Amoju Pinik, has finally slammed the door against the employment of indigenous coaches for the senior national team. Amoju 
overhyped Olise and christened him Pep Guardiola of Africa when he was handpicked to replace former skipper and coach Steven Okechuku Keishi. Phoenix says they are now going to start shopping for a well-grounded and qualified foreign coach to tinker the team. Olise resigned as Super Eagles coach on Friday after he did not enjoy the right support from the Nigeria Football Federation. The NFF swiftly announced under-23 coach Samson Siasia, Eagles assistant coach Salisu Yusuf, and under-20 coach Emmanuel Amunike to lead the Eagles for next month's AFCON qualifiers against Egypt to be supervised by coach Shwaibu Amodu. A new FIFA president Gianni Infantino has denied that promises to the United States over who will host the 2026 World Cup secured his election win. U.S. Soccer Federation head Sunil Gulati switched his vote to Infantino in the second round of Friday's voting. Bidding processes for the 2026 World Cup were postponed in the summer amid a corruption crisis that has engulfed FIFA since last May. That decision was taken after the way the 2018 and 2022 tournaments were awarded to Russia and Qatar became part of an ongoing Swiss criminal investigation. Infantino added that the problems at FIFA could be fixed fast, but it must cooperate fully with authorities. The reforms need to be implemented now from day one immediately. So I will go up to the office and uh, start looking at concretely how to implement these reforms so that we can then hopefully very soon as well concentrate on football. In cricket news, the West Indies women beat the momentum proteas by an emphatic 57 runs to take an unassailable 2-0 lead in the three-match Women One Day International Series at Buffalo Park Stadium in South Africa's Eastern Cape Province on Saturday. The Proteas' betters again failed to put together a partnership big enough to successfully chase down the Windies 3-232. Only Trisha Chetty, 51 of 78 balls, managed a half-century with the next highest runs coming from Mignon Dupri, 24, and Andre Stein, 20. The third ODI will take place at the same venue on the 29th of February at 10 a.m. Central African time. In rugby news, South African rugby side Cheetahs coach Franco Smith believes the main reason to his side's 33-34 loss against the Jaguars in their Super Rugby match in Bloemfontein on Friday night was largely due to inexperience. Smith admitted that the Argentines played well, especially after absorbing the early attacks from the cheetahs but that's his side will take valuable lessons out of the loss we must stay realistic you know we played some very good rugby for the first 25 26 minutes i think we due to lack of experience you know take a focus off especially when they started making the game slower um, and keeping the ball away from us and uh, just before they replaced the two or the two yellow cars came back um, but it's well all played by them. They can see that they're very experienced. Also, the way they started nudging the ball in behind us um, uh, when they were leading was actually good. To, to go all the, all the way with them, um, I think we did well. Finally, with golf news, Louis Oosthuizen has won the ISPS Honda Perth International. Nick Dye reports. It was Oosthuizen's first visit to Australia, coming on the recommendation of Ernie Els and Ian Baker Finch, who said how much he'd enjoy the late Karanyup course. He was installed as a pre-event favourite, and a second round 64 showed his ability before moving into the lead into the final day. 
In windy conditions, it proved an edgy closing round with a three-putt to finish. He'll also put this down to being two years since his last win, despite all the good performances of last season. A storming 66 saw Alex Levy finish second, with local man Jason Scrivener recording a best tour finish in third spot. Erst Hazen now moves on to the WGC event at Doral, aiming to build on a top 10 finish a year ago. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Central Africa Republic Interim President ready to hand over power, African Union to deploy human rights observers to Burundi, and Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe rejects food aid from gay-friendly countries. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magaza and Tanta Masangu, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Now taking us to the top of our for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Femi Kuti with the song titled Bang Bang.
right now who don't come too fast To the left now who don't slow 